0: Scano Sego Ani Bojo Queque Tansi and good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I am your host David Moses, and we have a very exciting phone show for you today. We have many guests on our phone in lines that are calling in. To start with, um, someone who we have had on the show before and whose name and voice that may be familiar to you, especially in the Ottawa area, is our very own Element. Caroline O'Neill, our Ottawa news reporter, and uh, she is our eyes and ears on the Hill as well. Caroline, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, David. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, it's great to have you back on the on. It's, it seems like it's been a while since we had a chance to speak.
1: You know what? I think with everything happening on the Hill, it feels like it's <laughs> been a year, not a few weeks. <laughs>
0: And yet, you know, with everything happening on the Hill, it doesn't seem like that much has moved forward because we're still talking about snc lavalance right? There's still exactly. that thing. So what can you tell us about that issue?
1: <laughs> yeah, there's quite a bit to talk about. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to touch on was the Daughters of the Vote initiative that happened last week. Mm. And this was a chance for young women across the country to come and participate in workshops about politics. They had the chance to take a seat in the House of Commons, as well as have the chance to address the Senate. Mm -hmm. This was the second time this initiative was done. And in 2017, the young women who took their seats in the House of Commons actually made history because it was the first time every seat in the House of Commons was occupied by a woman.
0: Wow, that's very cool.
1: Yeah, it's quite the event. And it was... Now, I, can i can i just stop you there first can
0: i just stop oh, you there for a ahead. sec can you please go describe ahead. that to me how did it feel for you to be there as a woman and see this and 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 be part of that 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 event taking place
1: yeah so you know what actually david it's funny you ask that because I, i've actually covered it both times mm. so the first event in 2017 i was a journalism student and i covered it then for my school's newspaper and I found it to be incredibly emotional, because in, at that point, it was just two months after Donald Trump had become president, and mm. I think a lot of women around the world were feeling a little demoralized about the state of women in mm. politics. Mm. Um, the atmosphere was very different this time, because this time it was under a different political setup, right? And the young women who were there were very aware of that, and they had their own messages that they wanted to send as well. So it was, it was neat to see there was still an empowered message. Um, you definitely saw that both times, but I think there was also a message that these young women were well aware of what was happening last week, and they weren't there to be anybody's props, they were there to share their message as well.
0: Mm. So, you know, the other thing when you say that, which, which comes to mind, is with everything that has also happened over the last uh, year or, or so, uh, especially with, with the Trudeau government and with... Um, with Justin Trudeau saying, you know, originally that he was there for, for women's rights and standing with women and, 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 and feminism. Uh, how did that affect things, or how did you get a sense that that, that had, uh, had a different feel about it?
1: Yeah, so, so young women arrived in Ottawa around April 1st, and they were there until April 4th. So the night before they were supposed to take their seats in the House of Commons, Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould were kicked out of the Liberal caucus. Mm. So that definitely shadowed what was going to happen the day before, and there were a lot of questions at the time about what message is Justin Trudeau sending, not only young women across Canada, but the young women who were specifically there to be empowered and to learn that, yes, there is a spot for them in the House of Commons. Mm. And without a doubt, that was a question that was there. But like I said, the young women were there. They knew that they had the media attention, and when you are a successful applicant for something like that, you're aware of what's going on and you're a smart organizer. So they also knew that they, they wanted to share how they were feeling. But I think without a doubt, you heard that a lot from the opposition, um, from the NDP and the Conservatives especially, about what is the message, Justin Trudeau, that you are sending. Because to them, the opposition, the message is that if there is a strong, outspoken woman, she's not welcome in the Liberal Party.
0: Mm. Or, or at least one that, that has opposition to perhaps the, the status quo.
1: Yeah, and that's definitely what the opposition was saying, and that was also something that I heard from the delegates as well because, as, I, as we said, I was on the Hill last week for that.
0: Mm. And, and so what did you come away with from that, from some of the people that participated? Did you get a chance to talk with anyone?
1: I did. So quite a few things happened on the Hill, and I think sometimes it's hard to report all of it. But first of all, um, the different party leaders addressed the young women on the Hill, and when Andrew Shear started speaking women slowly started speaking out. Not everybody, and I would say probably no more than 50, but women started actually leaving the House of Commons while he spoke. Mm. Um, and they did it in a staggered manner, so it was very hard to look away because at some point you knew that something was going on. So I actually left the House of Commons gallery at that point to go and chat with the delegates to see what was going on. And I happened to run into Kaylee, Kaylee Arthurson, who was one of the Indigenous delegates from Churchill-Kiwatunik-Aski, And she told me that she decided to leave when Andrew Scheer was speaking because she felt that he didn't represent who she is as an Indigenous woman living in this country. Okay. And I think they really wanted to get the message across that while they were not happy with Justin Trudeau, there were other parts in the political system that right now they're also not happy with.
2: Mm. And so
1: she told me that the Indigenous delegates had a plan to turn their backs to Justin Trudeau when he came to address them. And they did do that later. And that was the story that really got the headlines. Mm. But I should say that the women made it very clear with any political party leader who they felt had needed to be held to account that they would hold that person to account. So it was Andrew Schur and Justin Trudeau who really got a message. And it was quite a sight watching people stand and have their backs turned in such a manner. I don't think I'll forget watching that happen.
0: Mm. What would you say was the... uh... Was this was the feeling in the room at that time?
1: Well, so it's funny, I go to the press gallery quite a bit and it's typically never full mm. and people were standing to watch mm. and people were trying to count how many women people were waiting because you knew something was going to happen. And the other thing, too, is that the press gallery or sorry, the gallery, the public gallery itself is full. But because all of the seats that the MPs usually occupy were taken by these young women there were actually quite a few MPs sitting in the public gallery witnessing all of this happen. Mm. And it was Jody Wilson-Raybould herself who said later on in the day that she looks forward to a future where 338 MPs will work together and support each other the way she felt that the young woman had
0: that day. Mm. Do you think their presence there w- was a bolstering uh, element? Did it, did it bring some pride to the, the people that took part in that?
1: I think so, for sure. Um, I think that anytime you get to interact with someone like that, I think it's a really big deal, especially, I think, especially for a young woman to have the chance to get to meet the MP Mm -hmm. who sees her taking, to have the support. I think that's really quite a moment. I had the chance to interview a delegate in 2017, and her MP was Catherine McKenna, and she had the chance to go to an event with Catherine McKenna and she told me that that was something she would carry with her the rest of her life. So I mm. think for these young women to be 18 and 24 and to be told your voice matters and you can change our country is a big deal.
0: Mm. So I have to uh, have to ask that if if people uh, the, the delegates the people that took part in that on on uh, you know for, for this event if they mm-hmm. felt like they They didn't have the support of Trudeau, and they also didn't feel the support of Mm Sheer. How, what what was that leaving them with? What kind of a sense of of hope hope or hopelessness was it leaving them with, do you think? Um,
1: I think it was kind of mixed ways. So I think to Trudeau, for them, it wasn't so much about him supporting them, although I'm sure that was part of it, but they wanted to tell him, we don't support you right now. Mm. And I think that was how they flipped that message. Uh, yeah, that's the interesting. The other yeah. thing was that um, they had the chance, some of them had the chance to meet Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott. And mm. from what I hear from the delegates, meeting Jody Wilson-Raybould was like meeting a rock star. <laughs> they were like, because these are, these are young women who care about politics, right? Sure, so sure. there were lineups to meet Jody Wilson-Raybould and to mm. take a picture with her. <laughs> and I think for them, they're very inspired by her. Yeah. And... Something like that was, it was, I think, very uplifting in the midst of everything that was happening. And then on the flip side of that, Jane Philpott and Jodie wilson Rabel did sit in the public gallery for part of the day. And this was the day after they were kicked out. And they said that for them, it was almost like a bomb to help them feel better about everything that had happened.
0: Right. Well, you know, these women stood on principle. They, they stood up and, and said what they they felt they needed to say, as we said on principle, that that's, this was the right thing to do. It wasn't necessarily following the party line or, or toting the party uh, for the sake of the party. It was saying this is what is the correct thing to do and I, I will be doing it um, regardless of the, the fallout.
2: hmm
1: I think a lot of people right now are talking about the difference between maybe building a party and building a party behind a leader. hmm Um, Justin Trudeau will not be the party leader forever. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: He won't be the prime minister forever, but some of these MPs could be in the party for quite a long time and you're building a party that will continue to have a future. And I think a lot of people in the liberal party right now are kind of asking that question about what is this party that we are building. Mm. And I think people watching are also asking that question too, right? They want to know, is this a party where we can share our dissenting opinions? Is this the party where we can hold people to account? Or is it not, mm-hmm. and what will it be over the next few years
0: right so uh, listen, you know this story hasn't ended of course it's it's uh moved on um with with uh with the question um of were they uh correctly uh removed from caucus uh and and that story continues w- do you have any news on that for us
1: right, so that that like you said, this is the never ending story. <laughs> Um, So yesterday on a question of privilege during during some routine proceedings in the House of Commons, Jane Philpott, who is now an independent, spoke up to say that her rights, as well as the rights of Jody Wilson-Raybould and her former Liberal colleagues were breached. Mm -hmm. So she says that this is according to Section 49 of the Parliament of Canada Act that requires Liberal MPs to vote four times. And she also said that the bar is supposed to be very high when it comes to expulsion. Mm. And there's supposed to be a certain number of MPs writing and requesting an expulsion. Right. There's been a lot of confusion about this kind of after that's been said. Mm -hmm. The Speaker of the House at the time says that he can't enforce that. Mm. So while he heard what he said, he's looking in to see if there is any role for him to play in all of this. Mm. And then we're also hearing that this was an act that had come from Michael Chong, a conservative MP, and we're hearing that it's not even clear if this was something that the Liberals or the NDP had signed on to. Hmm. And Justin Trudeau himself says that caucus made it very clear that they were not interested in having Jody Wilson-Raybould or Jane Philpott be a part of the Liberal Party anymore.
2: Right.
0: And he said he spoke with them uh, over, an, you know, over a number of days and weeks about this. Uh, exactly. But is there any any? Um, validation of that as, as it's been asked by, you know, um, Jane.
1: I mean, we'll see. I'm interestingly enough. Um, she trended on Twitter yesterday for that, which really doesn't happen often. You don't really see a routine house proceeding Mm -hmm. becoming big news, right? Um, people are very interested in what's happening Mm. and especially, I think you're going to see the opposition party really, um, try to drive that one home in question period. It came up quite a bit, right? And I don't see that changing tomorrow. And then I also think there is this ripple effect as well that are going to be seen by the constituents in Vancouver Granville, which is Jody Wilson-Raybould's riding, and Markham Stovall, which is Jane Philpott's riding. So in Jane Philpott's riding, the majority of the Liberal Riding Association has actually resigned. Right. Because they do not have it, they say, in their hearts to support a new Liberal candidate. They right. want to support Jane Philpott. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so I think that's the thing, right? Um, The writing association are the ones who essentially, they do all of this work behind the scenes that elect people like Jane Philpott. Right. And if they're not interested in doing that work in October, this election will take a different turn.
0: Well, it speaks to a larger issue, I I guess, when you hear that from, as you just described, the people that are doing all the work to get these people elected. If they're losing heart or they're losing hope or they're getting disgruntled, uh, what does that say? You know, and that's just one one riding. Uh, so, uh, you know, I wonder what the effect will be as we get closer to the election and, and see other things that may be uh, happening because of this. The other thing I want to ask you about, though, is um, do you have any further uh, word on this whole thing with Andrew Shear and, and, uh, and the Prime Minister with the libel?
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. That, that came up. <laughs> um. So Andrew Shear says that on March 31st, Justin Trudeau threatened him with a libel lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And according to Justin Trudeau's lawyer Julian Porter, Andrew Shear made defamatory comments about Justin Trudeau in regards to SNC that then were widespread across the media. Andrew Shear just um, announced this earlier this week, and he says, "Bring it on," right? Because you would have to swear under an oath. And according to Andrew Shear, we'll finally figure out some of those missing pieces from SNC-Lavalin.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, this was, again, another focal point of question period yesterday. It got, it got very heated and intense at some points because you had a lot of people lobbing back at each other saying that one party has a history of lying and defamatory comments and then the other party kind of throwing that back at each other. Um, I should say to the people who are watching this as well, this also isn't uncommon. During the Ontario election, sure. Kathleen Wynne at one point had actually been locked in a legal debate as well. Mm. But I think what's interesting is Andrew Scheer is essentially goading Justin Trudeau because I think yeah. he's saying either way you make my point, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't go forward with it, you have something to hide. Right. But if you go forward with it, this will continue to live up into October.
0: Yeah. What Do you get a sense that, or what sense do you get from being in the Ottawa area and the Hill and uh, being in the press gallery that... Mm our leaders of our parties uh, and their their images and their leadership is uh, being uh, tarnished or changed or perceived differently.
1: With Justin Trudeau it's very interesting because he typically does incredibly well internationally Mm -hmm. and then those numbers tend to go a little downward domestically Mm. which would make sense. But that being said there was a poll that came out, I believe, last week that actually showed Justin Trudeau polling about three points below Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, regardless of any political spectrum somebody might be on, mm-hmm. I think it's common knowledge that Donald Trump typically does not poll well, mm-hmm. and that is, that is quite a spot to be. Yeah. The other thing I would say um, is that, like I said, internationally, people tend to hear the more positive stories coming out of Canada But my brother's actually working abroad right now, and he told me that he had colleagues who were asking, like, what is this SNC? What's going on? Mm. So I think the fact that that started to leak its way, I also saw um, a BBC article that actually referred to Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould as Canada's whistleblowers. (laughs) And I think even that kind of language would show maybe a certain approach Mm. or a certain look at what's happening. Mm. And I do think that some of the things you mentioned... Um, in regards to this case, it really calls into question for a lot of people, is there a commitment to feminism, but also was there ever a commitment to reconciliation? Mm-hmm. And those are some of Justin Trudeau's biggest, those were some of his biggest campaign points in 2015. And they also brought along with him the voters that got him this role. Mm-hmm. And it'll be very interesting to see if those people are willing to vote for him again.
0: Right. All great information, Caroline. We appreciate you uh, you sharing all of that with us, and it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, always. And uh, we appreciate your valuable work work that you do and sharing that information with us. Now we have a little bit of time left. I'm just wondering, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you want to uh, that you want to touch on?
1: I think there was one thing that I wanted to comment on from Daughters of the Vote. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the pictures that I saw that came out of that on the very last day. There was an Indigenous delegation that actually took the time to go visit Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould, and they chose to sing and honour them. Um, They were singing and drumming and singing honour songs. And the women, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, seemed to be incredibly appreciative of that.
0: Mm. Nice. Uh, That's great. Now, uh, listen, we have uh, another guest coming up at the bottom of the hour. We also, in the next few minutes, have uh, someone calling in from Humber College and uh, they're going to give us a little bit of information about something that's happening uh, up at Humber College this evening uh, here in Toronto about uh, a new opening, and uh, it sounds very cool. So that's going to be coming up uh, just after our break. But um, in terms of Equal Pay Day, I understand you were speaking with uh, our guest that's going to come on at the bottom of the hour. Do you have anything you just want to say about that?
1: I was. Well, she was actually at a rally yesterday, very fitting. Yesterday was Equal Pay Day. Mm-hmm. And she was at a rally here in Toronto trying to bring awareness to that. So she has definitely had a very interesting week. She has a lot to say. And from what I've heard, she's also very excited to talk about this issue and talk about how it would impact different women in Canada differently. Mm. Because equal pay, a lot of people would say, isn't kind of a one-size-fits-all. It depends a lot on diversity and economic and socioeconomic classes. And so she's going to dive in a little bit to that and how different people would be impacted in this country.
0: Mm. Yes, well, that sounds great. And we will be talking and discussing those uh, points at the bottom of the hour. Uh, but uh, it's getting very close to our break time. I just want to give the last word over to you in case there's something else that comes to mind you want to mention or.
1: I just wanted to thank you so much for having me on, David. It's always a pleasure. I'm headed to the hill within the next hour or so, so I'll definitely have more updates whenever you need me back on. But thank you. Miigwetch.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. We, we enjoy having you on, of course, and you're, uh, you do a great job of bringing all that information to us and sharing that with our listeners in the Toronto and Ottawa area and also anywhere that someone might be listening by downloading that Radio Player Canada app and listening anywhere across Canada uh, by typing in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM. And, of course, you can listen via the web and uh, anywhere around the globe. Right now, it is 11.20. We're going to take a short pause. Carolyn, uh, so much for sharing that information with us. We will be right back after this break. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. I want to uh, just say one more shout-out to Caroline O'Neill, our Ottawa correspondent, for coming on the air this morning and telling us and sharing with us some great information about things happening in the Ottawa area and, and bringing us up to date on those items. I now want to welcome to the show Caitlin Phillips, and she is the Indigenous Student Success Assistant at Humber College, and she is on the line. Good morning, Caitlin.
3: Good morning, David. How are you?
0: I'm good, and thank you so much for calling in uh, to take part in our show today. Uh, You have some exciting news to share with us about uh, Humber's Barrett Center for Technology and Innovation. Is that correct? So it's an opening that's taking place this evening, I understand.
3: Yes, it is. It's a big opening tonight for... some of our executive team and other people who have been involved in the project. And then tomorrow there will be another opening for um, the Humber community so everyone can go check it out.
0: So tonight, and what this is about is Humber's uh, uh, Bar- Barrett. Barrett, is that correct, Barrett?
3: Yeah. The Barrett Center Center? for Technology Innovation.
0: Yeah, and it's a new facility built to inspire innovation and support skills development. And it's going to be housing applied research and project-based work-integrated learning with industry and community partners. Now, the center is also going to feature interactive technology zones. That sounds pretty cool. Digital media studios, cutting-edge prototyping and marker spaces with open-concept gathering spaces and demonstration areas. All sounds very cool.
3: Oh yeah, it is for sure. Humber has definitely um, spared no no research. No, <laughs> they didn't cut any corners whenever they were looking for um, the, the technology and the advances to put into this building.
0: So, if you can you describe this to us, uh, if, if for our listeners and try to give us some sense of what this looks like.
3: So, this building is ninety three thousand square feet. So mm-hmm. it is huge. And Mm. as you mentioned, there's collaborative spaces, uh, maker spaces, digital activity and media zones, technology zones, project um, rooms. But one thing that really stands out for us is um, Humber's Honoring Indigenous Voices and Experiences with our second installation of the College's Indigenous Cultural Markers. Mm. We had our first opening for them at the Lakeshore campus earlier this year. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, this is the second installation. So um, the Indigenous Cultural Marker in the Barrett Center was designed by an Anishinaabe architect, Ryan Gory, mm-hmm. and he was the same one who helped, um, who, who archi- was the architect for the the previous cultural markers. So this this one that he did for our new building um, tells the Anishinaabe path of life, um, the creation journey, and the destination of it, and actually. The, the installation, it goes through the seven stages of life, and um, it's absolutely beautiful. It's huge, and it's at the very end of the building, so you can see it pretty much from wherever you are because it lights up as well. So even if it's in the night, you see this beautiful, glowing installation that um, really draws people in.
0: Wow. Wow, yeah. sounds very interesting and exciting. I want to see this now uh, can't <laughs> wait um, well, that's wonderful so so what does this mean for both the school and for students?
3: Well, this new building is just an amazing resource for all students who are in the field of technology. Um, It allows a whole new level of learning and experiential learning, and just the facilities themselves just brings the educational experience to a whole new level. So Humber itself is gaining this beautiful building that, you know, um, allows them to, um, support the students in the way that we want to, but then also for the students, they get to um, have access to technologies and resources that they may never have been able to otherwise.
0: Mm. Okay. What do, you, uh, what do you perceive that might come out of this new facility?
3: I think there's going to be um, new programs, there's going to be, I mean, higher success rate whenever students are able to learn in more hands-on environments, environments that cater to all different types of learning styles um, and um, are able to immerse themselves in the industry that they're going to school for—it's like the technology industry. Mm. Um, I think there's going to be a really, really positive impact on all our students and our faculty. I think it's going to be a very um, successful working environment for everyone.
0: Now, uh, as you said, this is the the second phase of these the marker spaces that have been put mm-hmm. in. And how would you say that uh, for an Indigenous student, uh, this this uh, uh, helps them or or that it makes them feel maybe more at home?
3: Well, a lot of the um, the feedback that we get is that it's hard to enter an institution and not see yourself reflected, mm. um, whether it be in your work environment, your learning environment, um, any place that you spend a lot of time, if you don't see yourself reflected and it's hard to feel like this is a safe space or a space of belonging. Mm. So this is all of our cultural markers are kind of... Um, a modern take on the land acknowledgement. Mm. Um, so it's, it's nice because the non-Indigenous students and the non-Indigenous community of Humber get to experience a bit of our culture and learn. It's definitely like a conversation starter and mm. um, an opportunity to share knowledge. But then also our Ind- Indigenous students kind of have something that they can relate to and, you know, they can see and have a reminder that this is a place where they belong and that they can feel safe and that, you know, Humber is welcoming of them and their culture and everything that goes with it.
0: Right, and also educational for others at the same time.
3: Yes, exactly.
0: Now, the, the, uh, the catalyst for this, uh, this, this new facility was a $10 million investment from the Bartlett uh, yes. Barrett Family Foundation.
3: Yeah, it's the largest donation in Humber's history.
0: Mm. That's very, mm-hmm. so, very generous and nice.
3: I, I know. So this uh, investment has also founded um, scholarships for students in tech programs mm. across the college. So it will contribute to skills training, mentorship programs, that kind of thing as well. So it's not just the building, mm. it's investing in students' futures as well
0: what would you say this uh opens up in terms of the the school's ability to uh to uh, bring in uh further students or expand the student population
3: well just the idea of this whole new building and what comes with it um it kind of put gives humber that but step up over maybe a different college or university that students might have been considering because a lot of the times it's not just the programs that students look at, it's the environment, it's the, it's the resources, it's the college or the university itself. So I think Humber is going to see um, a very positive um, response from students with this new building because it's something that's new and exciting and that other institutions might not have, and it's a, it's a nice advantage for Humber right now.
0: Mm. It, it certainly sounds like it is. I would just like to say, "Nyamugatch!" Once again, for to Caitlin Phillips, uh, she is uh, Aboriginal and Ab- 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 Aboriginal Student Success Assistant, but I now change that to Indigenous Student Success Assistant. She was calling us from Humber College and telling us about the new opening they have taking place this evening and tomorrow, as we heard for Humber's Barrett Center for Technology, Innovation, Transformations Experiential Learning. Okay, I believe we now have our next caller on the line, and uh, we have uh, Faye Faraday. She is from the Equal Pay Coalition, and uh, I believe she's on the line. Faye, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello. Good morning. Uh, welcome to the show, and, and uh, thanks very much for participating in the show today.
4: Well, thank you for having me on. I'm happy to be here.
0: So you have a couple of things to to talk to us about. First of all, you're part of the Equal Pay Coalition, is that correct?
4: That's correct. I've been working with the coalition for about 25 years now, and I'm currently the co-chair.
0: Okay. Uh, Did you say 25 years? Yes. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> okay,
4: <laughs> yes, sadly, this is the generational work that we're dealing with <laughs> well, um, we can
0: we'll get into that a little bit, but first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about the coalition then something about how it got started, why it got started, where is it located? those kind of things
4: sure the um, the coalition got started in nineteen seventy four and it has been continuously active since then. The coalition is made up of over 40 organizations around the province, including um, uh, labor unions, um, uh, community groups, women's groups, groups of different racialized folks, students' groups, and um, businesses. And we're all united in the fight to um, bring equal pay to women. It's Mm. fighting against pay discrimination in the workforce, and as I said, sadly, this is generational work. Yeah. The you know the gaps that women are facing now um, are pretty much the same as they have been for the last two to three decades. So you know there has been very little movement, and that systemic discrimination is making all of our women poor.
0: That I, you know I'm, I'm very surprised to hear you say that in terms of the, you know, the amount that, that, that it is still uh, uh, separating those, those equal pay uh, rates is, is about the same as it has been for 20 to 30 years or so uh, because just of awareness building and because of the work that you guys are doing um, and about some of the things that have been brought in to try and alleviate some of that concern.
4: So many different drivers, but let me just give you a picture of the problem right now. The reason um, that we're talking about this now and the reason that we marked Equal Pay Day with actions around the province yesterday is because the middle of April demonstrates how far on average women need to work into the new year to make what men did on average at the end of 2018. Right. So women are on average, need to work three and a half extra months to get the same pay. But that burden is just an average. It doesn't really show the depth of uh, the discrimination. And we always break that down. And we always um, put Indigenous women at the front because... Oh, Hello? Ontario and across Canada, women are, Indigenous women are facing a 43 to 45% pay gap, which means for them, equal payday isn't until around June 6th. Mm. Um, Yeah, that's... And it's, you know, for for racialized women, um, it's that as well. It's 38%. So for them, equal payday isn't until May 19th. So that burden of discrimination is absolutely not borne equally by all women.
0: What kind of things do you hear from people when you address this with with people uh, in places that can make changes to this? Um, What what kind of things do you hear back?
4: There's, um, for many people, there's a a disbelief that this still exists. and concern that this is too expensive for businesses. But taking that position that it's too expensive for employers suggests that women have an obligation to subsidize business profits with their low-paid labor. Um, But another thing is that people don't appreciate all the different drivers of the pay gap. So people think that it's about men and women doing the exact same work being paid differently. And it absolutely is that. For, for sure it is that, but it's broader than that. Um, it's also all those female-dominated um, jobs, particularly care work um, and teaching and nursing, that are paid significantly less than male jobs of similar value. There's the fact that women still face enormous uh, discrimination in getting hired in the first place, and then when they get hired, getting opportunities for training and promotion and then, when we look at the um, precarious jobs that people have, women make up and especially racialized women, make up seventy percent of minimum wage workers and seventy percent of workers in part-time, casual, seasonal, um, temporary agency work. And those part-time, casual, and temporary agency jobs are typically paid 50% of what full-time workers earn who are doing the exact same work. So, you know, and then you layer that on top of the lack of affordable uh, childcare, um, on top of... Uh, women's unequal burden of doing um, unpaid care work, you know, who has to leave their job to look after people who are ill. And then you layer all of that on um, the way that colonialism has completely disrupted and um, uh, destroyed indigenous uh, economy of women's roles in society, it's a compounding process. So there's not one simple policy that's going to fix it. And, you know, politicians want easy answers, but this isn't something that has an easy answer to it. It takes a lot of different actions on a lot of different levels to really make the change stick. Yeah, And you know, sadly, what we see are people or um, governments proposing the exact same solutions that were proposed back in 1970, which are that women should just uh, get um, traditionally male jobs; they should move into jobs that men have traditionally done, and um, that uh, that we need uh, a national childcare strategy mm-hmm. and Uh, we don't have the national child care strategy and women get driven out of male-dominated jobs because of, uh, you know, gender-based violence on the job and toxic masculinity in different industries. So um, there is a lot of work to do, but not political will to do it.
0: Mm. Well, you just mentioned a very interesting uh, comment when you said that they're proposing the things that were proposed in the 70s, and yet you said this isn't a quick-fix situation. But if they had made some moves back in the 70s, perhaps some of those things would have been done by now because it isn't a short-term fix situation, and there would have been some movement made forward on this.
4: Absolutely. And uh, the thing is that the, those recommendations that were made in the 70s have not been acted on. Mm. There was a Royal Commission on the Status of Women in 1970. One of its key recommendations was a national child care strategy that was publicly funded. Uh, we don't have that. Um, the, uh, there is um, just an unwillingness to recognize that having equality in our societies and in our economy means you actually have to do things differently. Mm. Um, and in um, an era where profits are always put first on the list, there's no incentive to to change that.
0: Well, uh, to hear you say the comment earlier that uh, people were saying, well, business can't afford this, that is just a head shaker to me. Uh, I don't understand that one at all. Uh, you know to hear that that shouldn't even be uttered to me as a, as an, as a comment. If you know what I'm saying.
4: And, yeah, and yet it uh, that is one of the issues. Um one of the uh, really simple changes that the equal pay coalition is asking for right now. Is that the government implements strong pay transparency legislation? Mm. We were able to fight and work with the last government to get pay transparency legislation introduced, but the current government moved very quickly to just suspend it indefinitely. Mm. What pay transparency laws do is they require employers to disclose their pay structure, to uh, disclose what are the average earnings, annual earnings of men and women in different jobs and to show where men and women are distributed um, through the income levels within a business. Mm. When we've seen that legislation that's been implemented in a number of countries around the world, Um, Particularly in the UK, we've got very accessible information there. We see that Canadian companies that are operating in the UK have very significant um, wage gaps between their male and female workers and that the women are overwhelmingly concentrated in the lowest income levels and that their numbers get smaller and smaller and Mm. move up the Mm. income chain. Mm. So having that kind of legislation is important because if women don't know what the pay structure is, they can't enforce right, their yeah. right to equal pay. Of and right now, non-unionized women can be disciplined or even terminated for asking about or sharing their own wages within a business. Mm-hmm. So you know they're uh, really up against uh, a system that makes it impossible for them to enforce their rights.
0: Uh, Faye, we have to take a pause. So I'd like to just hold you there and hold that thought, but come back right after this and speak with you more. So please don't go away. We We will be right back on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Welcome back to Moment of Truth and Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. On the line with us, we have Faye Faraday. She is with the Equal Pay Coalition. And as she mentioned earlier, she has been with the coalition for about 25 years And uh, we have been talking about some of the issues that they have been facing over that time, as well as talking about uh, Equal Pay Day, which was held yesterday across the province. Uh, Faye, I'd like to ask you about um, why this Pay Day, Demonstration Day, was especially important this year.
4: This Equal Pay Day was particularly important because... um, this government has not actually articulated a plan for what it's going to do to close the gender pay gap. What we did this year was um, we sent delegations out to eight of the key ministers of the government who have um, powers that could directly affect closing the gender pay gap. And we asked them what their plan is to... To do that, equal pay has actually been um, recognized by the government in collaboration with setting that date with the Equal Pay Coalition. It's been recognized in the legislature um, for a number of years now, but this year it wasn't. Mm. Um, it wasn't marked in the legislature. We were not in the legislature listening to statements of commitment from the government. We couldn't even get a, a meeting with the the Minister of Labour. Um, So we were out on the streets and going to their offices demanding a plan. We met with the chief of staff for the Minister of Labour, and we asked, what is your ministry's plan for closing the gender pay gap? And honestly, they don't have one. They could not tell us what their plan was. And that's a real problem, right? When you've got a government that's saying it's open for business, that has no plan for how um, women's rights in the labor market are going to be protected or how workers' rights are going to be protected, we're in real trouble. Um, the gap that we've seen, you know, as I said, it's stagnated. The In Ontario, it's around 30% for all women. It's closed marginally since the mid-1980s, but most of that closing of the gap has been due to the loss of well paid unionized male jobs in manufacturing it hasn't come from lifting up mm-hmm. women's low pay mm. and you know the it's more profitable to pay people less right so that shift isn't going to come uh, voluntarily we need government action to uh, demand compliance the you know it's ironic that we're, or not ironic, it's uh, profoundly troubling that we're still fighting this. It has been against the law to pay women discriminatory wages in Ontario since 1951. And we still have to fight this fight because we haven't got equality yet. Um, and when the government doesn't have a plan, we're in trouble. So what we did is we went to um, all of these government uh, offices and told the responsible ministers what they need to do. We told them that they need to implement strong pay transparency legislation immediately. There's no um, excuse for delay. This is information that every employer has right at their fingertips. um, And they need to make that information public. Um, we said that we need to ensure that there is a fully, properly funded um, universal child care system that's accessible and affordable, and in which the care workers are paid proper, fair, professional pay. You know, they've introduced this idea of a tax rebate. But a tax rebate only helps people who are wealthy, and a tax rebate doesn't build um, more childcare spaces. It doesn't expand the system. So there's that. We've told them that they need to properly fund public services Um, throughout the public service. It's a very female-dominated workforce, um, but they're also the employer, and they need to fund those public services at a level where women are um, receiving pay equity, and also to ensure that the services are there because women and families rely on them. Um, And we've told them that they need to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour right now. Um, There are almost 1 million women in the province who are working for minimum wage. And again, their tax refund policy, which they instituted instead of uh, the minimum wage increase that was supposed to come in on January 1st, that tax refund is going to leave minimum wage workers worse off. They'd actually receive about $851 more each year if they got the, uh, the $1 minimum wage increase. Mm. So they need to get uh, that pay in women's hands right away. And I encourage all employers that they can introduce at $15 minimum wage. They don't have to um, lowball their employees and go for the lowest permissible standards. They can choose to pay their employees fairly and pay them a living wage. And we've told them that the government needs to actually enforce the laws against um, unfair pay. The Pay Equity Commission, which is responsible for overseeing pay equity, has through its own audits shown that fifty-four percent of employers are not complying with the law. So when breaking the law is more common than complying with the law on like mandatory standards, we have a system that's truly broken.
0: Indeed, uh, and that's quite troubling to hear uh, that it is over fifty percent uh, when you when you Indeed. say that.
4: Yeah, it is. And a lot of this discrimination, as I said, is anchored in broader systems as well that make different communities of women worse off. So I started by talking about how Indigenous women face the largest gaps. And so it's important to build real reconciliation, real, uh, you know, things to ensure that there is clean water in every Indigenous community around the province, to ensure that there is um, full funding for uh, Indigenous children's education and that they're able to access um, safe, um, high-quality education in their communities, and to ensure that our economies are built to ensure that Indigenous people whose land this is actually have economic security and are not dispossessed from um, the wealth of this province. So there is a lot of work for all of us to do, um, no matter where we are situated. And it matters. The government has, in a study that was prepared for it, um, shown that if the gender pay gap was closed, we would have $18 $18 billion of additional wages in our economy and that government revenues would increase, would have an additional $2.6 billion every year. Imagine the uh, the health services, the education, the public services that we could fund with an extra $2.6 billion, right? This isn't just something that hurts women. It hurts communities. And it hurts our economy as a whole. There's no reason not to act.
0: Mm. Well said. We appreciate you uh, bringing up all those points. So you've done this. You had equal pay day, and you've made these statements, and you've asked for these things uh, to happen. What is your sense that that this might be implemented? You asked for uh, 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 that this uh, new uh, the the transparency act be implemented by May first of this year.
4: Yes. Well, the, um, the government held a so-called consultation on pay transparency, but they haven't set any deadline for implementing it. Um, we don't know what their plans are. We will certainly be following up and demanding answers on that. And we will be continuing to follow up with all of the ministers whose portfolios um, give them power to close the gender pay gap. Um, we, uh, you know, we received one um, uh, very general statement introdu- that uh, Minister Elliott made yesterday in response to our tweets and our uh, delegations, but there still isn't a real plan. We're not seeing a plan. The provincial budget comes out tomorrow and we will be going through that with uh, a very fine tooth comb to see what plans they are making and what is in there that will help women. And if, there, uh, if the budget is not something that's going to help close the gender pay gap, we will certainly be continuing to speak out loud on that. And um, we hope that... The folks who came out right around the province to support us will be there too. Um, Yesterday, Angus Reid Polling Company released a poll that showed that people across Canada, regardless of their political stripe, um, overwhelmingly support strong legislation to ensure that women have equal pay. And we need our governments to listen to that. The people... Are on board with this. People overwhelmingly want pay transparency. And we have to have, um, you know, government is about serving the people. It's not about serving corporations. We need to um, uh, bring that accountability back into how we operate.
0: Mm. Appreciate you saying that and uh, telling us a little bit about uh, the future as you're ta- mentioning the budget tomorrow. We have a few minutes left, and before we, our time is up, uh, I would like to ask you, uh, one, how can we help? What can people do?
4: Well, um, a very easy thing that people can do is um, they can call, they can email, they can uh, tweet their, uh, their local MPPs, they can go visit their local MPPs and ask, what is their plan to close the gender pay gap? We have in um, our, uh, our demands that we posted on Equal Pay Day and that are available on our website, we've set out what our five key demands are. People can see that at on our website at equalpaycoalition.org. Um, people can talk about this in their workplaces. People can share their salary information. They mm-hmm. can demand that their employers... Um, implement the minimum wage. There's a group of um, fantastic employers called the Better Way Alliance who are employers who know that giving workers decent pay, fair pay, and decent working conditions is good for all of us. They can demand that their employers join the Better Way Alliance. Um, But mostly we need to continue to raise the awareness about this and remind people that this isn't done, that the wage gap is real. No matter how you slice it, whether you look at hourly pay, monthly pay, annual pay, um, women are being shortchanged. And the women who bear the biggest brunt of that are Indigenous women and racialized women and women with disabilities. And we uh, really need to um, advocate for all our sisters out there. Mm.
0: So, so thank you very much for saying that, Faye. Yeah. Our time is up. One thing I want to add is that this by no means is a women's issue. Men can also play a role. Men have the uh have something to say about this as well, and they certainly should be supporting women in their right for equal pay. Would you agree with that?
4: Absolutely. And men can start by uh sharing their salary salary rates, mm-hmm. ensuring that women where they work are getting equal pay with them, and right. really being allies in that way.
0: Faye, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Greatly appreciate all your comments, and I hope to have you back on again.
4: Okay, thank you so much, David. Take care.